tonight on Arena. How Vivaldi used the Mamma Mia method for his opera Bazaget and Greek myth through the eyes of Athena, Helen, Penelope and other leading ladies. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Vivaldi's opera Bajazet tells the high octane story of power struggles based on actual historical figures. Bajazet, a fourteenth century sultan, and Timur, his usurper and founder of the Timurid Empire. And the opera is what we might nowadays call a jukebox opera or a pasticcio. In other words, it's made up of the greatest hits of existing arias, by and large written by other composers and incorporated with their permission, not a hundred miles away, you would have to say, from a type of 18th century version of Mamma Mia. Bajazet was composed for the 1735 carnival season in Verona and is set in a tense, claustrophobic environment. Powerful men and strong women negotiate their relationships. Irish National Opera, in partnership with the Irish Baroque Orchestra, is about to premiere Vivaldi's Bajazet in Ireland with a tour of seven performances around the country before transferring to the Royal Opera House in London for a series of performances at the beginning of next month. With me in studio here in Dublin is Peter Whelan of the Irish Baroque Orchestra and joining us down the line is the director of the production, Adele Thomas. Before we get stuck into the to the music and what was being done there by Vivaldi, which sounds like a lot of fun, Adele, maybe tell us about the, the story that he wanted to tell. It's, it's a, it's, it really is a classic power struggle type of story that he's he's putting across to us here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And can I first of all just congratulate you on pronouncing Bajazet correctly? That's really fantastic. I think I've heard every different intonation of that word for, that you could possibly imagine over the last year and a half while we've been <laughs> developing it. Um, the um, uh, yeah, the story um, of the opera is, is really complicated. Like a lot of these Baroque operas, if you were going to break the plot down, it would be incredibly convoluted. But but really, it boils down to exactly what you just said, which is that it's a very nuanced um, examination of power. Um, of what happens to um, uh, society or community when the world that they knew has been completely turned upside down. And so everyone has to reevaluate who they are now, how they survive, whether that survival, uh, you know, it necessitates a kind of violent struggle or whether or not they choose a smarter, more psychological path to the other side. So, um, you know, it's exactly the sort of thing that you We'll see in something like Succession, for example, yeah. which I've weirdly found myself referencing a lot, you know, over the course of rehearsals. And are we in a, are we in a particular family situation here, or are we in two different families, maybe, or two different empires, or two different dynasties, if you like, at loggerheads with each yes. other? So as you as you very aptly said in the introduction, um, Bajazet, who's the eleventh in line to a dynasty of Ottoman sultans that goes back two hundred and twenty years before he um, became sultan. Um, so this is a man of immense privilege, of power, of authority, unquestioned, unshakable. You know, um, uh, God ordained or Allah ordained in his case, um, power has been overturned by. Um, Timur, who, um, whose origins were as a shepherd in what is now contemporary Uzbekistan. Um, and so uh, there's a kind of a, a new world order which comes into play. Timur has imprisoned Bajazet in Bajazet's own home and Timur has kind of cuckooed and taken over the palace. Um, and the uh, so so then what we have is a kind of uh, a vortex mm. of many different empires that are um, around at the time who are then also sucked into it. So you have the Byzantine Empire represented by Andronicus, who's a 
um, Greek prince and who represents, I guess, in his own mind, a certain kind of civilizing force. Um, and you also have Irini, who is a woman and the heir to an empire of her own, which is unusual and strange. And between those four kind of dynasties, um, the power struggle is kind of relentless mm. and exciting and thrilling. But um, as it is often in the case, it's not necessarily the people we think will be the the heroes that turn out to be the heroes in the end. Yeah, and, and I suppose Vivaldi um, knew a story, Peter, when he, when he heard one and has, Adele has just given it to us there. There's great intrigue in between those four different factions, if you like. But the way in which he went about literally magpieing his way around the music available to him at the time and saying, yeah, I'll use a bit of that and I'll use a bit of that and I'll use a bit of that. It is a very interesting mode of composition. Absolutely. Well, he's he's basically found a great libretto by Piovani and that's a, a libretto that was used by several different composers, including Handel and his, his Tamburlano. There's another opera by um, Gasparini with the same kind of subject matter. Uh, and for this one, for, for Vivaldi's take on it, he, he goes down the route of pasticcio, which is a hugely popular kind of um, genre in, in, in the 18th century. And, and like you said, it's kind of a pasting together. It's like a playlist of the best possible areas he could find at the time from himself and from his friends to tell the story in the best possible light. And nowadays that might be frowned on a little bit as maybe being impure somehow, but actually he curated the whole thing really carefully. He pasted it together with his own recitatives and he made sure that the, you know, um, the best music mm. um, illustrated the, the best story. Interestingly enough, um, it seems that all of the, the, the good guys... Um, have arias by Vivaldi and all of the maybe not so good guys are all the Neapolitan composers from the other side his competition from the other side of Italy oh, That's very interesting so he gives the nasty music to other composers and to the characters that you don't like I presume A little bit there are exceptions but that's the kind of the general tendency so there's kind of an in-joke there as well I guess Absolutely and I suppose the other side of that is if very politely you said he curates the music yes he steals the music and uses it well <laughs> borrows the music with permission with permission for his own this was about making money. Yeah, well, that's the thing about Vivaldi uh, and the, the famous quote uh, from, from Stravinsky, for instance, that, that Vivaldi wrote the same concerto 500 times. Like, uh, to, 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 like, until quite recently, it looked like Vivaldi was kind of, um, you know, a businessman. If you came to, to Venice on your grand tour, you said, I play the violin. He said, you know what, I'll have a concerto for you ready in a few days. Like, there's, there's things that turned up in Scotland, flute concertos just in the last few years from exactly that reason somebody travelled over there. So there was an element of wheeler-dealer businessman to him but that shouldn't um, take away from his uh, like he's, he's also a true artist you know like mm. these these pieces um, speak through the ages he, he gives us amazing especially in Bajazette these amazing canvases mm. huge epic arias and you can paint them so many different ways it's a real it's a real treat and yeah the idea that he's stealing from other people um, w- 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 but he was actually quite careful of his own music so he gives some of his music to other composers yeah, too so very yeah. exchange there was a little bit of barter going on exactly uh, and yeah. there we were Adele thinking that Mamma Mia were the first to ever do this exactly nothing there's nothing new under the sun is there really <laughs> well there is something new and it's hearing Cecilia Bartoli sing by Gisette because ah, the, yeah. the way she sings this this particular aria from Act 2 of the opera I, I, I do, maybe I, I'll ask you I hadn't warned you Adele so maybe Peter would be able to pick up on it if, if I'm putting you on the spot mm. the Act 2 aria Anke el mar parque samerga uh-huh. can you give me the context for, for what's happening here and who's singing um, yeah, so in this production, it's the character Adaspe. And Adaspe is really fascinating because um, in this production, it's 
it's played by a she. Um, uh, I think originally the role was for um, a countertenor um, or a castrati, probably, which thankfully there aren't any about at the moment because we're a bit more humane in that respect. Um, and Anke Mar is a really interesting aria because it marks a turning point in the opera where everything seems to have gone about as badly as it could possibly go. So you'll hear in the first section, there's a kind of, um, almost like a kind of panic attack energy or, or a, a fizzing mm. kind of nervousness in the music. Um, but the B section is, and it, it might depend on which version you're going to play, because some of them play it in a minor key and some don't. But uh, but the B section, which is the middle section, kind of usually um, gives a kind of a weird, sublime moment of hope right. and a cracking open, open of the possibility that maybe things will get better, which is interesting. Well, we'll certainly get the panic attack feel that you mentioned in the opening <laughs> section of this. And it's Cecilia Bartoli who's singing in this particular recording. So we did let it run a little bit into the, the middle section, as you described it there. Uh, there we to go. Us. Yeah, Adele. It's a good job that middle section is there, because otherwise <laughs> the singer would not have a chance to breathe. Absolutely. I think you've got to have some time to chill out a little bit before you go back in and dive in for the second course of extreme coloratura at the yeah, end. Yeah, it, cer- it certainly is. It puts a lot of demands on the, on the singer. Who will be singing that part in, in the production, This Peter? is going to be um, Aoife Miss Kelly. And, uh, yeah, uh, there are so many demands on the singer. It's, it's, it's all superhuman, high-wire, circus act stuff. And it's in- incredible to think that anybody could, could sing that. I think unless Vivaldi or other people similar to him had written this down, you would say it's impossible to do. Mm. But you can just imagine, imagine him in his uh, room noodling on his violin uh, and saying oh well I could play this because he uses the voice in a very similar way to he would instruments even you know the same range as the violin down to low G's flying up to the top of the instrument but uh, I, I was also really interested to think that you know with this amazing breathless music Vivaldi is also uh, maybe the famous, most famous asthma sufferer uh, of all the composers. So maybe he's like, he's, he could hardly breathe. He couldn't say mass because of that. And that's why he was composing a lot of the time. So maybe this is his punishment on society, like these breathless, huge phrases, <laughs> things he could never dream of doing himself. Yeah, but but is, is part of the, because most people, I think, in contemporary circles, contemporary music circles now would think, yeah, you save a valley, you'll, you'll hear the Stravinsky quote and you'll think of the concerto, you'll mm-hmm. think of the Four Seasons, you'll think of violin music for the most part. Um, but in his day, you were saying to me before we came to her that in fact it was opera. Yes, he was He was best known in his day as an opera composer and it's really interesting, we were talking about earlier on, his, he was quite protective of his own material when it came to the opera world and that means that all of his material is collected together in one place in Turin, which is so unusual for a composer. So we have access to everything. And of course, the first thing to come our way um, uh, was the the Four Seasons. That became hugely popular, of course, with Nigel Kennedy and all the rest. Mm. But it took a while to discover all of these operas, you know, just sitting there. And over the past, I guess, 20 years, their, their, their value's been truly known. And also, you know, we've discovered more about him and the world of opera um, at, at the time and, you know, how that was, how he's 
best known. I, and you had, we were speaking about uh, the INO's production of Griselda, which was, uh, how long ago was that now? Is it last year? I, it might have been, a, yeah, it's hard to know with the old COVID fog. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah it was quite recently. And, and that was, I think, maybe the first um, performance of, of Vivaldi Opera in Ireland at the time. So and it's this quite is recent. the first performance of this opera here oh, in yeah, Ireland definitely, yeah. uh, as well. Given its uh, story, Adele, and, and as you, you make mm. the comparison to Succession, and we, we, we do get this sense mm. of four great dynasties at loggerheads or four mm. political powers, if you like, at loggerheads. I mean, we are in a part of the world where this type of power struggle is still going on uh, mm. in the Middle East. What kind of contemporary parallels do you draw or how do you go about bringing that side of things into the production, if at all? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to, to some degree, you have to be really careful about um you know, locating anything in an area where you're not from now as an artist, because you, the, the, you know, the accusation and, and rightly so, you know, the kind of nervousness around accidentally culturally appropriating or stepping onto a culture which isn't yours is is a real concern at the moment. So the and that coupled with the fact that, and I mean this in an absolutely positive way, that but that it's a very small scale production meant that there were limitations that mm. were imposed on the production through through not just artistic means but just from you know financial or, or scale or whatever um which meant that actually the focus has to be on the interpersonal relationships between the characters and that is what takes it away from any particular setting and just makes it really really human and incredibly incredibly dynamic um because it's so funny isn't it when we think about these operas and if you're going to do the A-level version, you could talk about all sorts of ideas of nationhood and um, and and empire. But actually, when it comes down to it, what makes this opera so beautiful and so compelling is that it is the individual characters and how finely drawn they are and how, it, you know, in this production, I, I have to commend the, the singers that we have because they are unbelievably extraordinary actors you know we had to fight really hard all the way through casting this to make sure that they had the acting chops to pull this off and i think it's that level of fineness of attention to detail that will that kind of makes it transcend all those those stock ideas that we feel like we inherit mm. do you know what i mean yes. and actually to kind of to just think about it in a much more human um and and detailed way so you know the idea of how do we survive a world that has been turned on its head and of course you know, it was uh, this production was supposed to be on stage um, a year ago, and uh, it was moved because of the pandemic. And before that, you know, the whole process of designing it was actually done on Zoom, and uh, and so I can't help but think that maybe it's it's without there being a single reference to COVID, I can promise there won't be a single LFT lateral flow test. <laughs> no one is wearing a mask, you know. But um, but it, but I'm sure that the fact that we have all lived in a time where suddenly the world we knew has been completely upended, yeah. that has fed that has I, completely fed into the production. And uh, Peter, you were saying here, and audits to INO on this particular achievement. Yes, it was the first, uh, Griselda was the first Vivaldi opera performed in Ireland. This is the first performance of this opera, Bazaget, but it's also the first time that Vivaldi has been performed at the Royal Opera House, a Vivaldi opera, I believe, and also yeah. the first time that an Irish, a, a, a production originating in Ireland is going to the Royal Opera House, Peter. I think that's true. Yeah, so it's it's just a you know a big moment for us all, and it's just so interesting to see how this has developed. And you know, kudos to Fergus Shield and and the team at INO who have really pushed this forward. And and through these difficult times, you know, it's, it operas such a huge animal and a, and a difficult beast to move around, and they've been tireless about that. So it's just um, 
yeah, uh, so grateful for that. Right. Well, listen, congratulations to both of you and hope that the uh, production goes really well. Vivaldi's Bajazette. Uh, Bajazette opens in Navin this Sunday. In fact, we'll tour around the country, Cork, Limerick, Galway, Maynooth and Dunleary between Sunday the 16th, Sunday the 30th of January. Six performances then at the Royal Opera House, Linbury Theatre from Friday the 4th of February through until the 12th and obviously irishnationalopera.ie to find out all about that and all of the restrictions etc. that will be in place. We'll finish up with the Sinfonia. Um, does he demand as much off the musicians as he does? By the way, you should have said that that was an actual Vivaldi composition, the Yari that we heard, Peter. Does he demand as much off the musicians as he does off the singers? Because this Sinfonia sounds to me relatively relaxed in comparison yes, to the Yari I mean, we heard. It is. This, this, this symphony just sets the, um, the the scene. For me, it's like a prehistoric kind of caveman uh, version of music. Just we're about to get something really brutal served up to us. So he, that's what he's going for here. But of course, you know, he was he was ruthless with instruments as well, um, violin especially, but even my old instrument, the bassoon, he wrote 39 uh, concertos for bassoons are all absolutely horrifically difficult. So I'm spared of those the last few years, all right, thankfully. Okay. And, and, and that's uh, boom, 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 seems, seems that that motif is there throughout the, the opera because it's here in this Sinfonia. Exactly, that, that occurs again and again and again, that repetitive, uh, obsessive theme. All right, well, let's uh, finish up with that. Thanks to Peter and indeed to Adele for being with us this evening. Golden Globe Award winners were announced last night and in the wake of the allegations of lack of diversity, racism and influence peddling the 79th edition of the Golden Globes for the Best in Film and Television awarded by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association was held far from the spotlight. No red carpet, no glamour, no live television broadcast. However, still noteworthy are those who were awarded last night. Big winner on the evening was the film The Power of the Dog, took home awards for Best Motion Picture Drama, Best Director of a Motion Picture Drama for Jane Campion, Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture Drama for Australian Co. McPhee. Will Smith won a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Motion Picture Drama for King Richard, uh, Winning Family and Nicole. Kidman was Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama for Being the Ricardos, winning a Golden Globe for the fifth time in her career. But no surprise that the award for Best Picture, Musical or Comedy went to Steven Spielberg's cinematic take on the classic Broadway musical West Side Story. In Spielberg's 2021 film, the lead Tony is played by Ansel Elgort and Maria by Rachel Zegler. Both, uh, she picked up the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy. But for many fans of West Side Story, on stage and screen, the two most dynamic and compelling parts of those of Anita and her boyfriend, Bernardo. Let's have a listen to the 2021 take on America from the Golden Globe winning West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg. David Alvarez plays the part of Bernardo. Ariana DeBosa as Anita, who was the third West Side Story, West Side Story winner last night as Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture.
America from West Side Story, or at least as heard in the 2021 Take on America, directed by Steven Spielberg, that winning the Best Picture Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globe Awards last night. And among the voices you heard there, David Alvarez as Bernardo and Ariana DeBose as Anita, who won the Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture at the Golden Globes as well. Classics Now is a new and exciting annual event on the cultural calendar, has just turned two with news of its latest edition. It's an online festival that celebrates the art, literature and ideas of the ancient Greeks and Romans and one of the guests is Charlotte Higgins, the Guardian's chief culture writer who writes on all aspects of the classics. Her most recent book focuses on female figures, Athena, Andromache, Helen and Penelope and delighted to be joined on the programme this evening by Charlotte. When did the classics uh, open up to your world or to to you as a young girl? I guess you were back uh, at the time you first came across these Greek myths and stories, uh, Charlotte. Yeah, um, actually, just before I tell you that, Sean, I'm actually live on stage in Dublin on Saturday, so it's not entirely... Oh, it's it's not not entirely entirely online. (laughs) It's not entirely online, so um, everyone, please come. (laughs) Don't leave me alone on on stage on Saturday afternoon, uh, Saturday week. Um, Yeah, I was a kid when I first got into the classics, it was entirely through the amazing stories. Um, So I was given a book of Greek myths uh, by Kenneth MacLeish, illustrated by Elizabeth Frank as a child by Mm. my elder brother. And I was completely hooked on these strange stories of transformation and uh, cruel and vindictive gods and goddesses and heroes and strange creatures. I absolutely loved it. And that was my route into studying classics and thinking, you know, in a more grown-up way about (laughs) classical literature. And the importance of the illustrations, I think, in that particular book can't be be understated, Charlotte. Yeah, I, I mean, Elizabeth Frink was a great artist and I found her visual aspect, her her drawings just completely captivating, which is why when I came to write my compendium of Greek myths, which is just called Greek Myths, A New Retelling, I was really eager that we um, invited a brilliant artist to illustrate the book. And we were incredibly lucky to, um, to entice the Turner Prize winning artist Chris Ophelia to collaborate with me which has been an absolute joy so the book is illustrated my book mm. um greek myths is illustrated throughout by by chrysophilia and i think that kind of adding another imaginative layer to the whole process because you know the retelling of greek myths is always a process of uh contamination if you like these stories are always being retold to serve the particular moment and i've brought my I envision to uh, these great tales from Greek and Roman literature and Chrysophilia has brought his incredibly fertile imagination to them as well. Well, and, and I mentioned the illustrations not just by way of that it was a route into when, when you were reading and looking at those pictures initially and indeed the illustrations, as you said, in your own version of the book. But we're inclined to think that multimedia was something we invented in the 21st century, in the late 20th century. <laughs> but these myths in particular were the subject of multimedia representation from the very beginning. That's completely right, Sean. I mean, they weren't just 
the subject of literature, of course, but they were. I mean, they 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 were literature second, I suppose, after a whole phase of existence in which they had been um, told verbally, orally, but they were also the visual material of so much of what surrounded people in the classical world. So the pots people ate out of and drank from, the, the stories were carved into the temple pediments in front of which people sacrificed. Um, and, and particularly important for me in, in my reversioning of these stories, they were also, it seems clear, woven into the fabrics that people adorned themselves with, which of course don't, generally speaking, survive at all. <laughs> but there's a there's a sense that this was the kind of cultural. These were the cultural building blocks. These were the way that these stories and myths were the way people communicated so much to each other, uh, and and they were omnipresent, as you say, in all forms. And of course, in the theatre, incredibly importantly. Uh, those stories were being used as the material for plays, um, refracting, using those ancient stories, old stories, of course, even for the fifth century Greeks, to as a lens through which to think about wow. subjects that were occupying their their own minds, their own contemporary world. And I guess that that idea of literally the weaving of the stories, you you take a number of. The leading, the leading ladies, as I'm, as I'm calling them, of the Greek of the of the world of Greek myth, you give each of them the opportunity, literally, to to weave a cloth, to weave a story in in front of us on the page. How important was that that way of telling each story for you? Right, yeah, really important because, well, I mean, for all sorts of technical reasons, I. There are so many potential stories to tell from this world. You know, it, it, it's a kind of, there is an overabundance, an absolute brimming forth of potential stories that just loom beautifully out of Greek and Roman literature. So I, I wanted a device to contain and almost to help me edit these stories. And the idea of inviting mythical female characters to weave stories onto textiles was a way, in a sense, of doing that, because the game became, what would Helen weave? Hmm. Um, if, 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 if we could see what Helen of Troy was weaving in the Iliad, because we do see her weaving a great tapestry, and we're told that she's weaving a story of the... Uh, she's weaving scenes of the Greeks and the Romans in combat... Um, and, and my sort of question to myself was, if I could radically expand that notion, if I could give Helen an enormous, complex, detailed, elaborate tapestry to weave, what would it be? And, and of course, there are, there are many other sort of moments in Greek and Roman literature where female mythical characters take control of a narrative through the act of weaving. For instance, Philomela is a character who is raped and her tongue is cut out. It's a very sad and terrible mm. story. But the way she bears witness to the crime is by weaving the story of it. And of course, Penelope in the Odyssey, uh, when she's um, fending off the innumerable suitors who are trying to get her to marry them, uh, waiting for Odysseus to come home, she tells them that she will choose one of them, but only when she's finished doing the weaving of her father-in-law's shroud. And every night, every day she weaves it and every night she unravels it. So another question might be, what, what design was Penelope weaving? So that was the conceit. And, and in, 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 in our language, as in Latin, 
text and textile, those two words are incredibly mm. closely connected. There's a very strong metaphorical connection between the act of storytelling and the act of weaving in classical literature. And, and of course, by having these women, these the heroes, these leading mythical characters weave the stories for us. You're handing the storytelling over to them. Uh, to what extent are you following in, 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 the, in the wake of people like Pat Barker, or Madeleine Miller and others who have you know, given us, the, if you like, those myths and those stories from the point of view of the, the female characters rather than always from the heroic man's point of view? It's a very interesting question because I don't think anyone sits down to write a book thinking, goodness, uh, Madeleine Miller has made this subject incredibly popular. I must <laughs> simply must cash in on it. But <laughs> I don't think I don't think anyone sort of operates quite as cynically as that. But I think I think there's undoubtedly there is a moment in which um, these stories are being told with gender in mind. And there is a kind of revolt against the seeing all of these stories entirely through the male perspective. Now, in my case, I'm doing something slightly different from any of these other amazing authors whose work I love, mm. because my book is a compendium of Greek myths. It's not a novel that takes a character and gives her motivation and, and allows her to develop through time. It, it's something rather different. It's, it's more in the tradition of Robert Graves' Greek myths or Robert, um, Rob, Robert Lancelin Green's um, stories for children, although my, my book is, is very definitely, I think, for adults. Um, but, and, and I'm a classicist who's been marinated in these stories for, for all of my life. I suppose... I felt that there was a wealth of material in the ancient sources themselves that is often overlooked by those retelling these stories, mm. especially in compendia aimed at children, and an enormous focus on the, the, the quest of the hero, which usually involves killing a monster and rescuing a maiden. But actually there's so much more and so many fascinating um, complicated, strange, and profoundly mesmerizing female characters who, in retellings from you know Nathaniel Hawthorne on Nathaniel Hawthorne onwards, have been sidelined. So I just wanted to broaden the uh, the lens, as it were, to open out the field of vision a bit. And and that sidelining, as you as you put it, uh, you know. When, when the Greek myths are told, and particularly when they're aimed at children, they have to be, they often are sanitised, almost out of existence. Um, is the sidelining of the female characters part of that? Or is, it, or is there something else at play as well, do you think? I think if we're looking back at the 19th century and Nathaniel Hawthorne's Tanglewood Tales, for example, which are a classic retelling for children, that's very, very obviously invested in the notion of providing examples of virtue to young men. And once you start really pushing the stories in that direction, that means you have to push, say, Medea out of the door. I mean, for instance, the story of Jason and the Argonauts, as we read it in the, the, the big original source, the big source from antiquity, which is a, called the Argonautica by Apollonius of Rhodes, um, that, that hardly provides a model of male virtue, in fact, largely because 
it's Medea, the princess from Colchis, where the Golden Fleece is, who does all the heroic heavy lifting to enable Jason to capture that Golden Fleece and take it back to Greece. Um, for example, she, um, well, she, she, she gives Jason mm. something very useful, which is a salve of invulnerability, which makes him capable of doing all the fighting that he needs to do. And then she magics to sleep the snake that's guarding the golden fleece. So all he yeah. has to do is pick it up and put it in his boat. So, so it's that sort of elision that I've been um, eager to address. Yeah, and and, and, and what, these stories are much more interesting when you do that as well. Yeah, and, and what about in the case of Helen? I mean, in the case of Helen, I've tried the, the accusation there is, oh, it was all her fault. She launched the thousand ships. She had the face that caused this war that went on for years across kingdoms. What did you want to, uh, was there something you wanted to address or is, as you handed the, the weaving over to Helen, was there something that you found in her story that was maybe not being told or being elided? Well, in her, her case is really particularly interesting, actually, because even in antiquity, people were talking about exactly what you've just mentioned. You know, did, was it all Helen's fault or was it not Helen's fault? Um, you know, that's always been a kind of, that's always been a kind of crux, a, a, a topic of debate. Actually, for me, it was almost... A, Helen is such an intriguing character, and particularly in the Odyssey, she has such sort of strange power, and I wanted to draw that, uh, draw that out. So we meet her in the Odyssey when Odysseus' son, Telemachus, comes to visit her back in Sparta when she's, she's gone home after um, the Trojans' war. The, the Trojan War, and she's just completely in control of the situation and this wonderful scene. She knows exactly who Telemachus is long before her husband's recognised him. She she creates all the kind of social glue, and then she gives all her guests drugs to make them forget the horrors of the Trojan War. And she's an absolutely wonderful, powerful character. In the Iliad, where we see her making this tapestry, she is the only character in that whole wonderful epic poem of Homer's who has the kind of purview and the perspective to make art mm. about the Trojan War while the Trojan War is going on. So it was just encouraging us not to read quickly over those passages, but to really enjoy the fact that yeah. Helen is an incredible character. And, and similarly with Penelope, I'm guessing, you, you and you've touched on this already, but you don't want Penelope to be thought of as the patient good wife sitting at home for the husband who's off out fighting the wars and winning everything. Uh, I'll sit and wait until you come home, love. You you wanted a different Penelope on the page. Well, I, I, again, I wanted to just imagine what what the end of the Odyssey would look like if you turned that coat almost inside out and, mm. and, and saw it scene by scene in a kind of slightly Rosencrantz and Guildenstern way from her perspective and what happens to her when she's out of the picture. So that that was indeed part of it, but 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 actually, you know, I'm I'm sticking very closely to the um, to the classical texts during this, but at the same time doing something else that's very classical in spirit, which is allowing a little bit of impurity and contamination to creep in, because that's what happens with every retelling, even and especially in antiquity, mm. where all these different versions overflow. Well, impurity is a bit rough. Look, why don't you say you're letting it grow organically into what it's now <laughs> going to become? Um, but just finally, as part of your research, you learned how to weave yourself. 
I did. I'm extremely untalented at weaving, but it was an extremely useful thing to do, I think, because mm. once you've got your textile spectacles on and you start reading Greek poetry or Greek uh, plays, you very quickly notice how much textile content there is. Uh, uh, textiles were just such an, the production of textiles was an inescapable part of anyone's life prior to the Industrial Revolution. Hugely important culturally, economically, and a, a kind of mm. dominating factor in life before the mechanization of spinning, before the invention of uh, industrialized weaving in the, in the Industrial Revolution. It's very easy for us to forget that uh, because we just don't have to do this work. But so in classical, um, in the classical world and in any culture prior to industrialization, a lot of lives and, and, and a lot of female lives specifically would have been pretty much devoted to making textiles. Every item of clothing that you wear, every sheet on your bed, every sail in the, in the fleet <laughs> would have had to have been uh, made uh, by a drop spindle, slowly spinning thread and uh, a, a pre-mechanized loom. It's, it's sort of hard, long, labour-intensive work. Lovely to speak with you this evening, Charlotte. Thanks for being with us. That's uh, Charlotte Higgins, whose book, Greek Myths and New Retelling, with drawings by Chris Ophelia, as, she, as, as, Chris, as Charlotte told us there, is published by Jonathan Cape in London. And Charlotte will be taking part in a conversation with Carlo Gebler. Arena's own Paula Shields will be the moderator there at the Classics Now Festival, January the 22nd, and that's from the City Assembly House. Full details of the festival can be got on classicsnow.ie. Cloud Studies is the title of a new exhibition which is opened at the Contemporary Art Space Visual in Carlo. The exhibition presents a series of images, physical models, 3D animations and virtual reality environments to demonstrate environmental destruction all over the world in particular. Cloud Studies focuses on how the air we breathe has been negatively affected through herbicidal warfare, forest fires, oil and gas pollution and bomb attacks. The exhibition has been put together by the London-based research group called Forensic Architecture and will be on display in visual at Visual in Carlo until February the 6th. Emily Lucy O'Brien is the CEO and Artistic Director of Visual. She joins me now. Maybe first of all, um, Emma Lucy, you could explain to me um, about this group, Forensic Architecture. Who are they? What exactly do they do? Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having us on to talk about this really important exhibition. Um, Forensic Architecture is a collective, uh, a hybrid of architects, photographers, filmmakers, software engineers, lawyers and investigative journalists. Uh, it was formed in 2010 post and I suppose in some ways in response to 9-11. Uh, the agency is led by British-Israeli architect A.L. Wiseman and uh, the Forensic Architecture operates out of the Centre for Research Architecture at Goldsmiths, uh, the University of London. Uh, the collective of expertise works to investigate human rights violations, including violence committed by states, police forces, militaries and corporations. And very, very importantly, in partnership with institutions across civic societies. So from grassroots ac- mm. activists to legal teams. 
NGOs, media organizations. Uh, it really is uh, an organization that collaborates uh, in whatever ways it can to to reveal things and find truths and bring things to people's attention. One of the one of the ways in which they work in putting, the, particularly their methods of putting exhibitions, such as the one that you currently have on show, putting those together, is called open source investigation. What what does that mean? What exactly is it? Yeah, open source is a really, I suppose, important uh, important term for us right now in terms of the the sharing of information. Uh, for en- for forensic architecture, it involves the collecting of information from the public domain. So you know, from social media, images across news sites, geographical information, uh, information from the built environment, architectural information. All this information comes together uh, in terms of their research and the, their investigation into uh, finding some kind of a truth or to, to map a situation and bring evidence to a situation. And, and the current exhibition, um, Cloud, Street, Cloud Studies, rather, the, the title here, yeah. there's something very yeah. romantic in the idea of cloud, but I think, I think that this exhibition is playing precisely against that, in fact. It does. It really does dispel that notion, that romantic notion of uh, of the cloud. Uh, the exhibition is in, I suppose, in a number of parts. There's one film, and it's called Cloud Studies, and it combines a number of case studies by forensic architecture that investigate state and cor- the state and corporate uh, corporate weaponization of the air. So, in this film, Cloud Studies, you will find examples of satellite imagery uh, which has captured carbon monoxide being emitted from maybe. Uh, Indonesian forests uh, in order to clear land for crops. Uh, there's an analysis of methane being re- uh, released from fracking in Argentina. Uh, you have a case study uh, relating to, you know, the, the terrible disaster that was Grenfell Tower and how evidence and, you know, witness testimony relating to the nature of the clouds within the building came together um, in order to, to, I suppose, put forward evidence as to what had happened there. Um, and then in another part of it, it has to do with herbicidal warfare, um, as it has occurred between, on the border between Israel and Gaza, where you know, crop dusting planes were sent out by the Israeli army to, to, to just spread chemicals into the air at times when the toxins would be carried across the border. Yeah, you, you, so, you speak, one of the points that you make in the literature around the exhibition is in fact this idea of the air being weaponised. You know, yeah. people will talk about the weaponization of water possibly, you know, about privatisation, cross-border flows and all of that, the actual the political control of where the water is sent, where, where it goes to. But the weaponization of the air is a much more insidious type of idea. Much more insidious and something that, you know, you, you, you is not necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily see it. But I suppose within these films, you'll find witness testimony where they're really describing what the air looks like and feels like to be within that air. And this maybe goes back to your point about this romantic notion of the cloud that we have. We can experience a cloud as well in terms of what it looks like and the shape of the cloud. But it's a very th- different thing to be within a cloud that is just so harmful and affecting you and your community so, so, so very terribly. Another part of the exhibition is called Environmental Racism in Death Valley, Louisiana. What exactly is involved there? Yeah. So this is a, a more recent project, I suppose, by Forensic Architecture, and it's an ongoing piece of work. Um, and here they are looking at uh, the suffocating plumes of the petrochemical character corridor that is uh, known as Death or Cancer, Cancer Alley in Louisiana. And this is a, an 85-mile strip uh, that goes along the Mississippi 
uh, River, um, and it has it, it holds some of the most toxic uh, air in the nation and has the highest cancer rates um, in the nation as well. Um, in this, this is where you'll find places like Shell. Um, so that's what we're talking about in terms of the petrochemical corridor. Um, and the other side of this, I suppose, is is the communities that are living there. Um, that there's 300 years of uh, there's a legacy of slavery in this area. Um, in that most of the communities that are living on this card are black communities. Um, so, you know, they have land that they have lived on for a very long time where they have ancestors that are buried on this land. Um, but right now they are really trying to advocate for, I suppose, their right to breathe, but also their right to the land that they've lived on for a very, very long time and where their ancestors are buried on. And the, the, the interaction here between, I suppose, the activism and the political uh, statements and side of what the, what the material is saying and the actual aesthetic side of what it's, of what of how the material is presented. What's the balance there? Yeah. So when you come when you come to visual, it's in our main gallery, which uh, for some people might have been before. It's it's the largest white gallery space in the country. So the impact when you come in is is really large scale film works that you can sit in and be, I suppose, enveloped within. Um, it's a, it's an exhibition that you spend time with. There is an awful lot of information, a lot of case studies. Um, and uh, we're inviting people uh, as part of the experience that we, we've kind of laid out information on how people can respond. Um, and there are things and there are actions that people can take within the exhibitions as well. Um, so um, I suppose it's a little bit different to some of the other exhibitions we've had in that this is really bringing art and research together. Uh, and more than art and, art and research, it's art and architects, it's art and you know, like we said, designers and people who are working, uh, software engineers, it's its gathering so many different types of uh, expertise in terms of bringing information to the public. And, and I guess a, a, a big part of that is the the, uh, the series of public engagement uh, activities that you have, a big public engagement programme running throughout the exhibition, the period of the exhibition. Yeah, we have a very open invitation to just groups to come and to talk. Um, we're doing uh, tours and conversations consistently over the course of the exhibition. Um, we have an invitation gone out to universities this week. Uh, we'll be doing a talk series and I think that we've been, we're not going to announce dates in the next couple of days. I think the 3rd of February is going to be an important day for us in terms of bringing some expertise together and really discussing some of the issues that are coming up in the show. Um, and talking to some of the researchers that have been involved in the show as well. Um, and and, and yeah. in terms of the current restrictions, as things stand, you can still let a limited number of people into the exhibition space at a time, or how is that working? Yeah, limited numbers. I think it's about 50 people. But for those who have been to visual, you know, you remember that it's quite a large space, so it's a safe space to move around. And for those that haven't, uh, do come along because it is, uh, you know, there is plenty of space and we are really taking care in terms of restrictions and guidelines. Uh, was that um, part of I know that it was originally supposed to end towards the end of January, but now it's been extended into the beginning of February. Was that part of the reasoning there, just simply to get as, as many people in rather than have to cut people off at an earlier date? Absolutely. Emma. But also it's just it's such an important exhibition for the time that we're living in. Uh, these, these are really relevant uh, and important uh, case studies that people need to, I suppose, know about and talk about. Um, so the extra extra couple of weeks gives, a, gives us a little bit more time to just uh, to, to keep moving on the conversation. And also there are communities that are involved mm. in these case studies that we really feel we want to do our best for. Um, 
that, like I know in Louisiana, Hurricane Ida devastated some of these communities, and that was only in August last year. So these projects and these case studies, they're not from any distant past. Some of them are really happening right as, now. As we speak. Uh, and affecting people, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being with us this evening. That's Emma Lucio Brand, CEO and Artistic Director of Visual in Carlo. The exhibition Cloud Studies open now, free to visit, runs through until February the 6th. Further details on visualcarlo.ie. And that is our lot for this Monday evening. Uh, Leah Murphy Research, Janice Murphy was the broadcast coordinator, Kieran Dunn was on sound this evening, and tonight's programme was produced by Casey. He talked to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio.